chapter 3. We'll start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we uh, come before you knowing we need you, Lord, and we need you in your word, and we need your help, the assistance of your spirit to illumine our minds to understand it. Lord, we ask that you would help us understand your word, and Lord, that you, as a result, would change our hearts by the power of your spirit, and that we would love you more rightly. Lord, that we would understand you more correctly. Lord, that we would be those who live out our faith because of our understanding and love for you in tangible ways that people see. And Lord, that we would be those who proclaim this glorious gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, to the ends of the earth. Lord, you command nothing less and you certainly deserve nothing less. So Lord, we come before you humbly recognizing our need and asking that you would assist us as we examine your word and Lord, as your word examines us in Jesus name. Amen. Well, in this section of Paul's letter to Rome, we kind of reached, well, not kind of, we reached the great turning point or transition in Paul's exposition of the gospel. If you've been with us since last um, September, <laughs> um, you would know that as we started this and introduced this letter, we came to verse 18 and at verse 18, we're told the wrath for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. And from there on, Paul goes out and lays out this argument, this argument that the wrath of God is against all men because all men are under sin. He goes through and lays it out from verse 118 all the way through verse 320, 319 and 20. He concludes with four. Those who are for what the law, excuse me, for whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, right? So that every mouth may be stopped and every one or all people may be held accountable for by the works of the law, no man will be saved, right? No man will be saved for the law gives us a knowledge of sin. And so he lays out this long argument. And if you've been here, you've been hungering for this point that we get to. You're dying for it. Please, let's get to this point, right? This great and glorious turning point. This paragraph, Romans 3, 21 through 26, has been called by a guy who was a pastor named C.E.B. Cranfield, the center and heart of Paul's letter 
this paragraph, verses 21 through 26 of chapter 3, called the center and heart of Paul's letter. Dr. Leon Morris has called it the greatest paragraph ever written. Now, when you read something like that, the greatest paragraph ever written by multiple commentators who agree, and you think to yourself, as you're preparing, I better not screw this one up, huh? In this single paragraph, Paul demonstrates why the gospel is indeed the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, because that's what he was setting up. He was saying that he was obligated to proclaim the gospel to barbarians and to Greeks, right? He was obligated to proclaim the gospel to everyone in Romans 1.14 and Romans 1.15. Therefore, he is eager to also preach it to you who are in Rome. And why is he eager to preach it to those who are in Rome? Because verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed or is being revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. He set up this heart of this letter, the gospel. And then he says, here's why you need it in 118 through 320. And now he returns us to it at 321. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed or has been made manifest. He tells us how the problem of our imminent judgment to hell is averted here. How it's averted and by whom it is averted. He demonstrates how the righteousness of God is received by man in this paragraph. He deals with justification Redemption and propitiation. He deals with the justice of God, the righteousness of God, and how we receive all that, all in this paragraph. So over the next several weeks, we'll try to unfold this great paragraph. I encourage you to take time over the next several weeks to commit this paragraph to memory. Honestly, you want an application point? Memorize this paragraph. Read it, meditate on it, memorize it. This paragraph is an explanation of how you can be saved. This paragraph is your hope when you stand before God. It provides your plea before the great judge. This paragraph is your comfort when guilt overwhelms you in this life. This paragraph is your weapon when Satan accuses you. This paragraph provides your assurance when you're questioning whether Christ's death is really enough to cover your sin. This paragraph is the motivation for Christian living. The doctrinal truth in this paragraph is what will give your marriage true meaning and and fullness. It's what will give your parenting true spiritual power. Why? This paragraph is the message you proclaim to your neighbors and to the nations. It's the central theme behind the name of this church. It's the focus of all of our preaching, the center of all our children's ministry, our music, our scripture reading, our prayer, our church discipline, and our small groups. Why is this paragraph so important? Because it so clearly proclaims the gospel so clearly proclaims the gospel. 
But aren't these truths taught elsewhere in Scripture? Sure they are. They're taught all over the place in Scripture. But this paragraph is probably or arguably the greatest single summation of the gospel you will find in the Bible as an explanation. And that's why I encourage you to read it, meditate on it, and memorize it. It is here that we get the most clear, concise, and cogent explanation of the gospel in this paragraph. So I challenge you to read it again and again. I want you to understand how important this next series is going to be because we are getting to the heart of the gospel. And so understanding that I want you just to look for here at verse 21. Let's jump into the text. Paul starts off with this statement, but now why does he start out this way? Why start off with this statement? But now, and the reason is because he's building on an argument right? He's building on an argument. He's obviously giving us at this point, a turning point in his argument. What's he saying? This was the reality, but now this was the problem. Here is the bad news. But now let me get you to the good news. Paul has laid out the bad news in order to demonstrate why we need the good news of the gospel. This is why it is so key that before you get into this paragraph, you read 118 through 320. Because he's giving you the understanding behind why this statement, but now is so pivotal, is so important, is such a major turning point. We've all sinned. We are all sinners. And as a result, the wrath of God is abiding on all men. All men are under sin and God's judgment. They're under God's wrath in their natural state. All of them, every single one. Let me give you this through a legal illustration. I want to try to give it to you in legal illustration. If you were in Kevin Lewis's systematic theology class with us, you will be familiar with this that we have on Thursday nights. You'll be familiar with this. Um, illustration. The state provides laws, right? Our state provides laws. And in order to remember to remain a citizen in the state with all the rights thereof, you must obey all the laws of the state. Is that correct? If you do not, then you're subject to the penalties of the law. You will suffer severe penalties if you become a habitual violator of the law. Is that correct? You are guilty and no matter what good works you do, you will not be declared not guilty. Let's say you murder someone. You can't go before a judge and say you're not guilty because you let everyone else live. Can't do it, but your honor, I let everyone else live. You're still guilty, right? Justice is such that if you break the law, then you will justly be punished. How much more so if we violate the laws of our holy and righteous God? See, if we violate one of God's laws, we're violating a law against an infinite 
God. And therefore, we incur an infinite debt. We can't keep several other laws and hope this removes the penalty due us. Can't do it. No matter what good we do, we are still rightly declared guilty of violating the laws of God. We were conceived in this guilt. We've personally participated in sin and incurred more guilt. And we are rightly or justly condemned. This is why Paul can say, by the works of the law, no man will be justified. You know why no man will be justified? Because you can't do enough good works to take away your guilt for the sin that you've already committed. Can't do it. He's a just judge. If this is the case, and all men are sinners, then all men will be punished for their sins against the infinite God with an infinite punishment or eternal punishment we call hell. And if that's true, then what hope do we have? See, that's a question, right? If we've all sinned and we can't make up for it and we're guilty before this holy God, then what hope do we have? No matter how much good we do, we can't overcome that. So where's the hope? If the law God wrote on our hearts and in his word just serves to show how sinful and justly damned we are, then how can we have any hope at all. See, that's the question Paul's going to answer. There it is. In other words, this whole section is answering the inferred question. If no human being will be justified in God's sight by works of the law, then how can a man be justified? How can he be declared not guilty? How can he go a step further, be declared righteous? It is with this understanding that Paul declared what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called the greatest two words in the Bible. The greatest two words in the Bible. But now. You understand that? Here's the truth. You're guilty. You're damned. All of us. And the law doesn't help us out of that. It just demonstrates it to us even more. But now. You hear that? The righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. Hearing these words ought to ring like music in your ears. It's like Ephesians 2. Turn there really quickly. It's talking about regeneration here and not specifically justification. Um, but, but listen to what Paul says here. Look at verse one of Ephesians two. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God you hear that same import, 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's a glorious transition. That is exactly what Paul is doing here in Romans 3. He's making this glorious transition. This is true. You're all under the wrath of God. And it's being revealed presently against you in the way God is turning you over to your wickedness, to your unrighteousness. And it's demonstrating that at that last day, at that great judgment, you will be damned. You are condemned. That's true. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. It's this incredible transition. Incredible transition. We were under sin and the law while it's self-righteous. While it's self-righteous because of our fallen nature only served to show how sinful we indeed are. It only served to show that we're justly condemned. But now. You hear that change? There's hope. It's not hopeless. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Something changed somehow the righteousness of God has been made manifest it was not manifest before but now it is the verb has been made manifest this this verb has been made manifest is a perfect verb why is that important most people would go okay whatever it's important because if you look at if you look at Romans 117 it says for it the righteousness of God is revealed that's a present tense verb and what it's there saying is it's revealed every time you preach it. Every time you preach the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Here, Paul is talking about an argument historically. What he's saying by a perfect verb is this, that at some point in time, the righteousness of God was made manifest and it has ongoing consequences. In other words, Paul's saying there was a historical turning point there was a point at which the righteousness of god was made manifest and it has ongoing consequences now so paul's saying at a point in time everything changed everything the but now is temporal in nature it was this way but now as a result of a change Everything is different here on forward. So what's the change? What's that historical change? It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It all changed at the cross. That's what Paul's saying. It was this way, but now at the cross, the righteousness of God was made manifest apart from the law. At the cross. At the incarnation, it began, right? The cross, you see this great culmination, and then you see the resurrection vindicating all of it in the ascension. We're under sin, and the law showed us our sinfulness, and we were damned. But now, but now that Christ has come and lived the perfect life that we failed to, and died on the cross and paid the penalty that was due us, and risen from the grave and conquered a grave we could not conquer, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in all who believe. Now that that's happened, it's all changed. We were ungodly and unrighteous. 
We had no hope of attaining the righteousness necessary to stand before God through keeping the law. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. It's a historical reality. At that moment in time, at the event of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the world witnessed, listen, the world witnessed the decisive turning point in the history of salvation. The promise that all of the Old Testament is looking forward to. From the time that Adam and Eve sinned, the promise that was made at Genesis 3.15 forward, at that point, was fulfilled and everything changed. That's really the discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a discontinuity. Everything changed. Where's the continuity? Look at the rest of verse 21. Has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. See, really, this leads us to the second point I want to make. While this gospel is new, this good news is new historically. It is not new prophetically. It is not new prophetically. That's what Paul means when he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is another way of saying the Old Testament tells us of this righteousness of God being made manifest. It promises it. Paul is saying that this gospel was promised throughout the Old Testament. Look at Romans 1, 1 through 2. And if you were with us at the beginning, you probably remember some of this. But look at Romans 1, 1 and 2. Paul starts off identifying himself. Doesn't say Paul, a great apostle. Paul, a man who's gifted in many ways. Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He just says Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great way to identify yourself? Called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. And now listen to what he says about the gospel of God. Which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son. Hear that? He promised it in the Old Testament, this gospel that Paul is set apart to preach. was promised. The gospel of God was promised beforehand. This gospel was promised in the Old Testament, and it was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. Jesus himself says this when he speaks to the Old Testament, right? In John 5, 39 through 40, here's what Jesus says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them, by the scriptures, what does he mean? The Old Testament, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus understanding the Old Testament is that it spoke of him. It was a book that promised or is a book that promised his coming. It provided shadows or types of him. It prophesied about his life and death. And it's ultimately fulfilled in him. So when you wonder how someone was saved prior to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how did it happen? How did it happen prior to that historical reality? 
You understand that they were saved by trusting the promise. They were saved by trusting the promise. We are saved by trusting the fulfillment of the promise. The promise starts in Genesis 3.15 at the fall when God promises to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. It continues in the promise to Abraham to establish him as a great nation through the Messiah, through whom the Messiah would come to be a blessing to all nations. Then in the prophetic blessing of Jacob to Judah, that his tribe would be the tribe through whom the Messiah would come. So first it's to all mankind in Genesis 3.15. And then it comes to Abraham, the specific nation through whom the Messiah would come, would bless all nations. And then it comes to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. Jacob passes it to Judah, saying, Judah, through this tribe, your tribe, will come the Messiah. So you've got all mankind, a nation, a tribe. It comes forward from there to David. God made a covenant with David, a member of Judah's tribe, promising the Messiah would come through his household, all mankind, a nation, a tribe, and now a household, David's household. Then through the prophets like Isaiah, who spoke of the Messiah coming to suffer and die for our sins and then to rule victoriously. The gospel is even shown in the giving of the law. For God also gave the sacrificial system to Israel so their sin could be atoned for when they sin. Think about that. God gives them a law and says, keep this law and you'll live. Okay? And at the same time, exact same time, he gives them the law and says, keep this law and you'll live. What else does he give them? The sacrificial system. What's God's assumption there? That they won't keep the law, isn't it? That they're going to fail. That they're going to need forgiveness. That their sin will need to be atoned for. God knew they would fail in keeping the precepts of the law. So he provided a way to avert. To avert dealing with the penalty of the law. God provided a sacrificial system that would ultimately point forward to his son. Whom John the Baptist declares. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God provided prophets that would speak forth the word of God, knowing that in the last days he would speak through his son, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, if you want to look that up, the word of God, the son who was the law giver and would also be the law keeper. God provided kings that would rule righteously over the people of God, knowing that in these last days he would send forth his son, who would serve the subjects of his kingdom. Die at the hands of the subjects of his kingdom. Rise from the dead and be exalted to the right hand of the Father, where all authority in heaven and earth would be given to him, promising to one day return victorious as the reigning king, who will come to his servants. And this part blows me away. When Jesus returns as the reigning king, who will come to his servants and do as he said in Luke 12. Listen to Luke 12, 37. Here's our king. He came and suffered and died for us. And now he's victorious. He will return as the glorious, majestic king of the universe. And what does he promise to do for us that are waiting for him? Listen to this. Luke 12, 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master, that's Jesus, finds awake when he comes. That's his return. Truly, I say to you, he the master, the king, 
will dress himself for service and have them recline at a table and he will come and serve them. Think of that. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has all authority in heaven and earth, says that when he returns as the reigning and victorious Lord, he will come to his servants, you, me, his bond slaves, and he will have us recline at a table and dress himself like a servant and serve us. God provided priests that would be a mediator between God and man. Knowing that in these last days, he would send his son who would be the great high priest. The priest who does not need to repent or wash to prepare himself to bring the sins of the people before the father. The priest who does not need to bring an atoning sacrifice each year, but whose work is once for all time. The priest who is able to put an end to sin fully and finally. The priest who does not need to provide a lamb, but is himself the sacrificial lamb. The priest who is not only a mediator for Israel, but is a mediator for all nations. The priest who is not only able to pray for his people during his life, but who's able to approach the throne of God and make intercession for us even now. The gospel of Jesus is written all over the pages of the Old Testament, and those who were saved were justified by faith in the gospel. Jesus says in John 8, 56, that Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Moses, Hebrews tells us, gave up all the treasures of of Egypt for the reproach of Christ because he considered the reproach of Christ better than all the treasures of Egypt. There's nothing new in the promise. There's nothing new in the promise, but there is something glorious and magnificently new historically. The fulfillment. Hear that? This great transition. There was a day when they were justified by trusting in the pictures of Christ. They were given the shadows and the types. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. But now Jesus has come and been crucified and risen from the dead. See, really, that's the gospel. That's the gospel that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. It's a gospel that's now accomplished in Christ. We'll be considering how Paul lays out the gospel to show that while no man may be justified by works of the law, no man may be justified by works of the law, there is a way by which man can be justified. There is a great answer to our misery in Christ. So over the next several weeks, we'll look at these things. Look at this passage with me. I'm going to show you what it looks like. Romans three. We'll look at this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. See that word righteousness there says there, the righteousness of God. And then look at 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That word justified is the same 
Greek root is the word righteousness. You see that word pop up again. Justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Again, it's emphasized. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the first thing we're going to look at is the right, the nature of the righteousness of God in the gospel, the nature of the righteousness of God in the gospel. What is it? What's the nature of it? That's what we're going to look at next week. There's a righteousness of God in the gospel. What is it? Second, we're going to look at the gift of the righteousness of God in the gospel. This is an outline for this passage, by the way, the nature of the righteousness of God in the gospel, verse 21 and 22, verse 23 through 24 the gift of the righteousness of God in the gospel. Look what he says. For there is no distinction at the end of verse 22. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Do you hear that? How do you get this righteousness? What is it? What is it? How do you get it? How do you receive it? Verse 23 and 24. It's a gift. It's given to you. It's not something you earn. Something you receive as a free gift. Third, the vindication, the vindication of the righteousness of God in the gospel. Look at verse 24 and 25 and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's like an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. God had to vindicate his righteousness and he does in the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, the old Testament people were looking forward, right? looking forward to the promise, but were their sins actually paid for by Christ's death prior to his death? No, God passed over them. God passed over them. He had divine forbearance. And when he punished Christ on the cross, their sins were then in historical reality. Those who looked forward paid for, and God showed that he was just, that he was righteous. And he does the same for us. It's paid for us, our sins beforehand. He paid for their sins after the fact. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what that looks like, the vindication of the righteousness of God in the gospel. And fourth, the reception of the righteousness of God in the gospel. The reception of the righteousness of God in the gospel. How do you receive it? What is it? What's the gift? How is God's righteousness vindicated? How do I receive that gift? Faith and faith alone. Verse 22, look at that. And we'll show you how this outline will work. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe or are believing. Go down to verse 25. Whom God put forward by 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Go down to verse 26. It was to show his, pre- his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As we do that, as we look at this outline, that will be the setup for the rest of what we're going to go through. The rest of Romans chapter 3 talks about why there's no more boasting. There can't be. What becomes of our boasting, verse 27? If it's all by faith, if it's received as a gift, if it's entirely the work of Jesus Christ and not our own, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded, right? By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified Excuse me, that one, excuse me, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And not only does it remove our boasting, it demonstrates to us that this is for everyone. This isn't just for the Jews who've received the law. This is for everyone. Look at verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And not only does it do that, but the whole thing upholds the law. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And then Paul is going to go on in chapter 4 and following and give historical examples of how justification not only is currently by faith alone, but it's always been by faith alone. Always and forever. That's it. As we look at this incredible gospel, which started with the bad news of our sinfulness, our being dead in sin, our being unrighteous and justly condemned, I want us to notice how glorious this phrase, but now, is. I want us to see the beauty of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ as we see that while it is true, we are unrighteous. We are. It is also true that Jesus is righteous and that he was pleased to die for the ungodly. And that God was pleased to not only forgive us in Christ, not only to forgive us in Christ, but to count us righteous in Christ. Hear that? So much more than forgiveness. When you receive the righteousness of God, you don't just receive forgiveness for your sins. You are counted or declared to be as righteous as God's holy son. Think of that. Going back to the legal metaphor, what this but now tells us, but now you're guilty. You're standing before the judge. You're under wrath and you are a sinner. You have no plea, none. You're going to be condemned. But now, but now, the judge will himself take the penalty in your place and not only declare you not guilty, he will declare you righteous. You see, when you walk away from a law court and you're declared not guilty, they don't make you the heir to all the things in the world, do they? Say you're not guilty. Do you know what happens in justification? When you were saved, Kevin, 
You know what happened? Not only were you declared not guilty, you were declared a person who was an heir to all the riches of God's kingdom. Think of that. That's what that but now stands for. I want you to be prepared to live the Christian life understanding how powerful the gospel is. Speaking of how essential that phrase, but now is the Christian life, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the following, and I want you to hear this and listen. When the devil attacks you and suggests to you that you are not a Christian, anybody had that happen? And that you never have been a Christian because of what is still in your heart or because of what you are still doing or because of something you once did. When he comes and thus accuses you, what do you say to him? Do you agree with him? Or do you say to him, yes, that was true, but now. Do you hold up these words against him? Or when perhaps you feel condemned as you read the scripture, as you read the law in the Old Testament, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, and as you feel that you are undone, do you remain lying on the ground in hopelessness? Or do you lift up your head and say, but now? This is the essence of the Christian position. This is how faith answers the accusations of the law, the accusations of conscience, and everything else else that would condemn us and depress us. These are indeed very wonderful words, and it is most important that we should lay hold of them and realize their tremendous importance and their real significance. You were guilty and under God's wrath, but now. Let me pray. Lord. We thank you for your word and your gospel that you have announced throughout the Old Testament that you've pictured, that you've pointed forward to, that you've prophesied, that you've promised, Lord. We're thankful for that. And we are thankful that you, Lord, are a God who has kept his promise and you have sent forth your son to fulfill it. And Lord, that at that historical point of the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything changed. Lord, that we can say, while it is true that we were under sin, while it's true that we were justly condemned and under your wrath, we can now look up and say, but now. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We're thankful for that, Lord, and we pray that you would help us through this passage and that we would be motivated to live differently because of what is true of the gospel, because of what you've done for us, and Lord, because of what you are doing in us. And we pray that we would declare this glorious gospel to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the band is going to come forward and lead us in worship. And they're coming forward in shock and awe because I finished in 45 minutes. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read a passage on communion.